Hello, welcome to New Wave Coffee, a podcast by Bellwether Coffee. Here at Bellwether, we believe we can create a better coffee industry, one that is more inclusive and equitable, and we believe that you can run your cafe with greater profit. So to explore that, in this six-episode series, we're going to take you on an audio journey to show you how you can think outside the box around topics like... The real situation for coffee farmers challenges they face and what they're doing about them and what cafes can do to help. Speaking of cafes, we're going to talk about the role of technology and the future of coffee. And we're going to talk about a very, very basic but complicated question. Who decides what tastes good in coffee? I'm Liz Pashad. I'm the product marketing manager here at Bellwether. Started my career as a barista. I was a roaster for a long time. uh, And then I own my own cafe and roastery here in Seattle. Here at Bellwether, uh, I'm passionate about trying to get more equity for coffee farmers and also helping people realize the unique visions that they have for their coffee businesses. I'm Arno Holshue. I'm the chief coffee officer here at Bellwether. I too started as a scruffy young barista. And uh, in the past 20 years, I've done most jobs in this industry. I'm now a scruffy old man, and the industry has really stuck with me. I've stuck with it because I love the people, I love the way that coffee tastes, and I really love caffeine. And I'm trying to make sure that coffee can do good in people's lives. Today, we're gonna be talking about a pretty basic question, which is how do you make money in a cafe? Of course, if you look on the internet, you're gonna find all sorts of opinions about how to run a coffee business, okay? But at the end of the day, you're gonna have to figure it out for yourself. What we're going to argue today is that the traditional cafe business model, as you've come to know it, is a very limited way of doing business. There are a lot of really innovative ways to develop your business for those who are willing to experiment. In this episode, we're going to explore some of the problems with sticking to the legacy model. And we're going to speak to two innovative founders to explore how they built businesses that are thriving despite the existential threat that COVID threw at them. So Liz, to kick things off, I want to explore a business model with you. Now, when you look at this business model, the first thing you're going to notice is that it's actually built around advocacy. But underneath that, it was a pretty traditional cafe model, and it's caused real problems for the people who are trying to run it. So let me introduce you to my friend, Doug. My name is Doug Hewitt. I am one of the co-founders of 1951 Coffee Company. We work specifically with refugees, asylum seekers uh, arriving here in the United States. When they first arrive, they're looking for jobs, looking for an employment. So we provide them with free barista training and then help connect them with coffee companies here in the Bay Area so that they can find jobs and, and get started with their life here in the U.S. Wow. Um, This is really near and dear to my heart. I actually serve on the board at 1951. Uh, I have a lifelong connection with the cause of refugees. My parents hosted refugees from Vietnam when I was a kid in like the 70s and sponsored them when they came to the United States. Wow. So Arno, what's it like to be a customer of 1951? When, When someone buys a cup of coffee in 1951, I think what... The customer is getting out of that is is you know definitely a, a high quality, very tasty cup of coffee prepared well, prepared professionally. But they're also being given an opportunity to affect change on a global issue of refugees, you know, moving around the world. But also doing it in a very different way. I mean, we could we could have had a cafe where someone buys a cup of coffee and a portion of the proceeds go to something really far away or whatever. But this is a very different way to be able to be involved in in refugee issues here in the United States locally. And you do it while immediately interacting with a person who is benefiting from the cup of coffee, whose life is being changed and transformed here in the United States right in front of you, you know, every single day as you buy a cup of coffee, that is empowering that person to take the next step and the next step and the next step. So... 
that sounds great. I mean, I also really appreciate his point that, you know, there are different ways to, I don't know, achieve impact than sending money via a donation to a faraway organization or sort of funneling money through your cafe. The the impact model is certainly different, but how is it as a business? Does it work? Yeah. Okay. So this is an episode about business models, about dollars and cents, right? And so here's what happened. He starts his cafe in 2017 and then came an opportunity for a coffee kiosk. And then there came an opportunity for a third cafe. So they're not just doing okay, they're growing. They're, they're, they grew at a really breakneck pace. There's a tremendous amount of enthusiasm for this organization and for their cause. You know, sitting on the board with them, we just felt like we, these are opportunities are too good to pass up. And then one more came along. There was another one. Oh, cool. And the people who were giving up the lease were like, you know what? We want to hand this to you. We know we could sell it. We want to hand it to you because we just want it to go to somebody who's going to be great. So it seemed great. <laughs> yeah. What's the but? I can <laughs> hear it in your voice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they got struck by the same Mack truck as the rest of us in February and March 2020. The wheels just kind of fall off. COVID. When COVID hit and suddenly that barrier between us and our customers was placed there and we literally had to be distant from them, you know, probably for about a, a month and a half. I mean, Everything was completely shut down. Our revenue was shut down. Our, you know, ability to, to employ and, and, and work with people was, was completely put on pause. But at the same time, as many people know, the bills didn't stop. Rent didn't stop. Going into May is when the first kind of Paychecks Protection Plan, you know, program was announced. When we first got it, the Paychecks Protection Plan loan had to be spent out in eight weeks. So at that time, we're thinking we got to get to August. Again, thinking hopefully the pandemic would end at that time. But at the same time, you know, as we opened our business, like nobody's coming. Like people, I mean, we would have a handful of people, you know, coming to the cafe every day, but nowhere near enough to be sustainable. Immediately, you begin to think about all the work that has gone into this. And like, is this really how this is gonna, this is gonna end? Is this gonna kill this off? I wanna pause the story here. I wanna unpack with you what was going wrong with this business model. Yeah, I mean, coffee is a a personal industry, right? Like we we make our money by selling cups of coffee to people across a counter. When you can't have people in your shop, what are you to do? I mean, it guts you overnight. Exactly. I mean, 1951 is a nonprofit organization, and it's such a, it has a couple of missions, right? One of those is to humanize the refugee experience in the United States. And Doug thought that the best way to fulfill that mission was to maximize the number of retail transactions between his staff and the general public, which makes sense. It was also a convenient way for Doug to financially support his organization and its missions. In that way, he looked a lot like a conventional cafe. There were a lot of businesses that were doing what Doug was doing, really, just without the mission. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the lesson that a lot of us have had to learn, right? Which is that you can't take any single revenue stream for granted if you're a small business. Absolutely. Now I'm going to make a bold statement about cafes, right? <laughs> which is, yeah, yeah, <laughs> which is that sustainable cafe business models have customer value propositions that can make money even when the world around them changes drastically. Businesses, and for that matter, nonprofits that are highly focused on delivering lattes and the accompanying retail experience are just going to be a little bit more vulnerable. Sure. And for cafes that were really just selling lattes and that in-person retail experience, the question became, what else can they do? What other facet of their business could they deploy? 
Now, Liz, we're gonna return to Doug and what he did and what his results were in just a little bit. But right now, I'd like to introduce you to somebody who had a very different experience during COVID. Before we move on, uh, can we find room for me to make a joke about putting all your beans in one brew basket? (laughs) (laughs) So Liz, are there any pithy metaphors you would like to (laughs) share with us? Hi, my name is Steve Holt. I am a coffee professional. I uh, work for a company called Unravel Coffee. We have three locations right now. We're opening a fourth in a couple of months. And we are planning on opening approximately two cafes per year. Wow, that's aggressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said, a different kind of COVID, right? But to understand how we got here, you kind of have to, to go on the whole coffee journey with Steve and understand how he's come to this place. Sure. So we're going to go on a bit of a tangent from the cafe business model into a different element of the coffee industry for a few minutes, okay? Because Steve is a real hero in the coffee community. I find his, personally, I find his story very inspiring. Excellent. Can't wait. So Steve started off the same way in the coffee industry that most of us do. I grew up in music. Accidentally. But you know, he wasn't really into like the commercial radio music scene. And one day he comes across a coffee roaster. Early 2000s called Novo Coffee. And this is when he realized that coffee could taste way better than he had ever imagined. First time I got to taste coffee that actually had fruit in it, it was a Ethiopian Harar coffee. So he takes his first step and of course it turns out he's falling straight down the rabbit hole. He gets more and more involved and eventually he gives up his job in music. And dug right into coffee, so by accident is- So Steve went from working in the music business to helping run a coffee roastery. Exactly. Roughly around 2006, the founder of Novo Coffee was- And then he kind of got the break of a lifetime. The founder of Novo Coffee went to Ethiopia to try and get a high quality coffee for his roasting business, but he had a problem. One year he would get great coffee, the next year it would not be so good. You kind of had to be there at all times. You couldn't just parachute in and somehow get quality. You actually had to be there and commit in order to deliver the coffee quality that consumers were expecting back in the U.S. Uh, He ended up canceling his return flight back. So the founder of Novo Coffee decides to stay in Ethiopia, you know, work with the local producers on the ground and help them to create high quality coffee. And... That's really what started a company called 90 Plus Coffee. And he tapped Steve on the shoulder. I was the first one on, and that's what really started my journey into the farming and importing side. So, okay, now Steve has gone from working in the music industry to then working in a roastery and then kind of getting the break of a lifetime working with this fledgling coffee trader uh, based in Ethiopia, 90 Plus. Yeah, so 90 Plus, for people who are not aware, they were producing some of the most beautiful coffees in the world. The Nikise, whatever, like some of those coffees from 90 plus yeah. were the best coffees I've maybe ever had. I don't know. I'm just going to hazard that. I They were they were life-changing. Yeah. And then things, it got really crazy. Like I remember being in Japan and seeing uh, his coffees being sold for like $50 for 100 grams and stuff like that, you know, roasted. Yeah. So things accelerated yeah. and kind of spun up really, really quickly for 90 plus. So, you know, it's an amazing story, but the next thing that happened actually opens the door to uh, the business model that Unravel would become. Early 2006, we had some really good friends in Panama that Novo was sourcing coffee from. We really thought that farm ownership was going to be the way to go. This 132 hectare farm became available. And at that time, this is when Geisha was really starting to come out into the industry is very scarce, but we knew that we love that variety. So we decided to plant the entire estate. 
with Geisha. Yeah, so Geisha is like catnip for coffee nerds, okay? Okay, so now he's gone from working in the music industry to working in a roastery, working for this amazing coffee trader based in Ethiopia, and then he goes on to buy a farm in Panama and plants it with the Gesha variety, which is one of the most extraordinary coffees in the world at the time. Exactly. And then so they buy a second farm, and they, once again, they planted it with this Gesha varietal, which produces these really amazing flavors and is very sought after in the market, right? And again, they have tremendous success selling these coffees for very, very high prices. But something about it just like wasn't working for Steve. I realized that we had built something great in Panama, but it was just getting to this point where we were you know, essentially producing quite a bit of geisha. And I was expecting that coffee to becoming a bit more accessible price-wise and you know, availability for everyone to taste. And, and it kind of just went the opposite and the prices were going higher and higher. And, there was just a lot of just conflict within myself of what's the right thing to do. Here we're leaving Ethiopia, which I thought was really the place to do the most work that, that had the most potential and really just felt that at this stage, I was kind of at a loss. I was not super happy uh, with the way things were going. And within that short amount of time, I just had to make that personal decision to leave the company, something that I built for you know, over 15 years to walk away from was really difficult. But I knew that, that something was going to happen out of this. So, so I left with no plan. Oof. I know a little something about walking away from your dream business, but it sounds like he left because it wasn't working, or at least not the way he wanted it. Exactly. It wasn't working for him, I would say, right? The business was actually quite successful. I mean, as he mentions, their coffees were fetching incredibly high prices, celebrated on the world stage. Everything's going swimmingly, but it isn't what Steve wanted to do. He had a different mission in coffee. Hmm. So he left the company to try something totally new, and he planted his flag in the retail world. I'm going to start another company, but... I felt like 90 Plus did some really game-changing moves to really improve the specialty side of coffee. I wanted to do that for the retail side. I didn't want to just open up another cafe and do what everyone else was doing. I just wanted a cafe that I could do it all in one place and pick a couple of pillars that I thought were going to, to separate me from the rest. So Liz, he's going to tell us the pillars of his dream business. And dear listener, if you are somebody out there who's thinking of opening a coffee business, this is really great because this is how a seasoned coffee operator thinks about building a retail coffee business. First pillar really is the origin site of green coffee. So there is a farm in Ethiopia. We're going to partner up and we're going to invest into building a mill and, and really just truly get back to farming. I felt like I was part of this exclusive group with 90 plus and it was just like top shelf coffees and all this and what i really did a 180 on is that now i'm part of an inclusive group and that's the biggest change for me is that i was in exclusivity now i'm in inclusivity very poetic yeah what i find so inspiring about steve's story and this is just something i find inspiring about steve is that he recognized that, you know, he was making a living and everything everything was going well in that sense but he recognized that his job wasn't working for him and so he kind of looked at his career, struck a match, threw it inside, let it all burn down. <laughs> and then was like, oh, because, you know, what I needed from that experience was a knowledge of my principles hmm. and clarity about what matters to me. Right. And so he's like, what matters to me is bringing in the green coffee experience, focusing on excellent green coffee and that connection to the farm. Yeah. So to recap, 
The first pillar he's putting up here is helping to produce and export amazing coffee from Ethiopia. The first pillar in his cafe is actually farming. Now the second pillar. Second pillar was deciding I was not going to go through all of this work on the farm side and then give it to somebody else to roast. I had to control that process. But at the same time, I didn't want to learn a whole nother set of skills investing into another facility and doing traditionally what other roasters were doing. Honestly, I just wanted to get the coffee on the farm and serve it to the people and, and tell the story. And that's where Bellwether really came in as a solution. So again, pillar one was work with farmers in Ethiopia to grow excellent coffee and then bring that excellent coffee into the cafe here in America. Pillar two, roast that coffee inside the cafe using one of our Bellwether roasters. And now the third pillar. Third pillar is realizing that every time I had a coffee, it was served in a paper cup. I just don't like the smell of paper cups or the off-putting taste and the fact that we, we go through all this work to create this amazing coffee and then we serve it in this ridiculous paper cup. And I was just like, well, that's not right. And uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Zayd Nequib from Bar 9 in Culver City, California, I went to his cafe and uh, he served me to-go coffee in a glass jar. And I was just like, oh, that's awesome. And it just stuck with me. And when I decided to open my cafe, it's like, there's no way in hell I'm going to be serving this beautiful coffee in something that I really disdained. And, and that was coming up with a great solution to use glass jars to serve. You know, it's a final act. It's like we've, we've got this coffee and, and we're presenting it to an audience. Here's the beautiful thing about that is that people are returning those jars and we're able to serve them again. It is, from a marketing standpoint, you know, people are snapping these on Instagram and, and we're really creating this glass jar movement. Now there's at least a dozen cafes doing it. And as far as cost effective goes, doesn't really make sense. I think most people were pretty afraid of, of that. It's like, well, that's gotta be really expensive. But it's like, but you're missing the point. I'm saving money because I have made decisions, one, farming my own coffee, to using a roaster where I'm saving, you know, 25 to 30% of my operational costs. I'm not burning up all this gas. My entire barista staff are roasters. So I don't have a, a separate location. I don't have a separate staff standing in front of a roaster all day. So I'm already saving money through all these. So, I mean, Steve alluded to this, but you know, the premise obviously of the bellwether is that because it's electric, Steve said you're not burning up all this gas. It's automated, meaning anyone on your staff is now a roaster and staff can roast as side work instead of dedicating a bunch of labor to a whole separate operation. Those removals of traditional barriers to roasting are what allowed Steve to also realize his own brand in the sort of lowest cost way possible. Exactly. Yeah. So what about, you know, this is all well and good for normal times, but what about the last year? How did he fare during COVID? Yeah, I think just in general, our retail has, besides COVID hitting, we definitely took a dip. But then we're right now at this point, we're kind of back at where we were. We actually exceeded our, our goals in revenue for the retail side on, on the mountain towns. COVID just allowed me to really realize and appreciate the fact that I'm already saving money because I've made this choice to work with a company like Bellwether where there is already a buffer in savings. I think we're probably seeing at about, you know, 20, 22% profitability, which is great. You know, we did manage to get through this, but not only get to survive it, we actually grew through it. 
And to be able to open essentially three cafes during COVID sounds insane, but we've done it and we've been very successful at each one. I could cry. That is so delightful. Yeah, just for people who don't know, 20 to 22% profitability in a cafe retail unit is like winning the Olympics five times in a row while blindfolded. It's an amazing performance. <laughs> it's mind-blowing. Okay, yeah. and so it's really something to be proud of. And it's not just because he's charging a lot for his coffee or serving an overly inflated product. Yeah, he's yeah. aligned with the marketplace for sure, you know? Well, yeah. And his bills are also, I mean, he's in Colorado, right? Like, right. He's not in these cheap areas. No. You know, he's not saving on labor. He's not saving oh gosh, on real no. estate. Oh my gosh, no. He's working at market rate, if not above, and 22% profitability is absolutely mind-blowing. His cafes are actually located in relatively expensive locations. We'll get to that in a second. But I think first, let's just explore some of the ways he reacted to COVID. He kind of deployed what became the classic toolkit, right? We we created a an online ordering system like uh, First thing is, cafes. he went online. We did shut down our space. And then the next thing he did was he opened a bodega. bodega. The next thing he did was focus on his kitchen. kitchen. Okay, but Liz, the biggest thing he did was partner with Gravity House. Okay, and Gravity House is a group that offers co-working spaces, hotel rooms, cafes, the like, in ski resort towns, okay? It is honestly right up my alley. Luxury snow sports? Give me a break. <laughs> they don't have one in my area. They could have checked my zip code first, but, you know, it's aspirational. I'm in. You know, in, in every story of grand success, there is a certain amount of luck. And for Steve to have partnered with a company who uh, builds retail spaces in ski resorts during a period where skiing was one of the only safe recreational activities, yeah, that's, that's good fortune, let's say. Yeah, it's luck. there's a, an element of luck, for sure. But with all of that success, Steve has actually moved away from retail now. Oh, okay. That was not a twist I saw coming, but go on. <laughs> but even only being operating for about two and a half years, I've actually left the operations of the retail and roasting business. And I've created a new company in the middle of all this, uh, which brings me back to my roots in Ethiopia, so I, I yeah. So he's starting a green coffee company to do uh, direct import of coffees from people he knows and teams that he's building in Ethiopia. Okay, so now if you take a step back, it's pretty extraordinary. So now he's gone from music to working in a roastery, helping build ninety plus easily one of the most amazing green coffee companies in the world, quitting that operation to open these really innovative cafe models in these very cool, you know, aspirational settings, and then decided to leave the operations of those cafes and go back to focusing on producing exceptional coffees from Ethiopia. But now I guess I have a bit of a question about what Unravel actually stands for. How does it all tie together for him? What's the what's the brand? That's the, you said the word right there. So the thing that ties it all together is his brand and the values that underline that brand. And Steve again is a pro. He's very intentional about what his brand is meant to do. When I first started this, my mission was to create moments of escapism through an upgraded taste experience. And I never even used the word coffee, which is really funny. For me, that is that is the epitome of like hospitality. Somebody comes in and the reason for them coming in is to let the worries go. And when I say creating moments of escapism, that just means that they're there for something else. They're there for that extra environment, that business meeting. And then what we're providing them are taste experiences. So that is both coffee and food. 
Our tagline is coffee for good. And for what that tells me is that it's what else besides coffee are, are we doing? There has to be a bigger purpose. Anybody can source, anybody can roast, anybody can serve incredible coffees, but what else are you doing? Steve's done really well. He's uh, really profitable. Uh, his, his cafes are growing. Uh, everything's going well for him. And it's because he has an innovative business model where he's focused on what his brand means. He's focused on bringing green coffee and farming into the cafe. And he's focused on an innovative way to roast coffee that saves him money. That's all outside of the cookie cutter model of cafes and coffee retail businesses. But he also got lucky. It was very fortuitous that he partnered with Gravity House, you know, a chain of ski resorts, which was one of the only businesses you could still operate when every other business could not. That was really lucky for him. I don't know. I think he probably walks into casinos and intentionally always draws 21 blackjacks, too. No, of course, it was incredibly lucky. It was incredibly lucky, right? So let's talk about a business that didn't have the luck, but still got the success. In fact, their business model was kind of more like Doug's. It was like dead square in the bullseye of the COVID bomb. Did they make it? What happened? As bad as they had it, uh, they've bounced back because they've managed to weave resiliency into their business model. Hmm. How so? Well, I'll, I'll let you in on a secret. Um, it's really about culture and leadership and how those are represented in their management style. So let me introduce you to Matt Fuller. Yeah, my name is Matthew Fuller. I am the owner and founder of Mudpenny. So yeah, tell me about Mudpenny. What's their deal? Mudpenny's deal is they were founded in 2012 and they got their start as so many operations do. They started with a coffee cart. Oh, delightful. But as many of these businesses do, they then migrated into a brick and mortar location. But actually what they found was that being in a permanent location, they could start selling people food and that that was very profitable for them. Food really took off. Well, we were kind of surprised out. The, the main goal was always coffee. We expanded into corporate catering and outgrew that space. And then in 2018, opened up a new location, a full service restaurant and coffee bar. Full service restaurant. Full service restaurant. Wow. Yeah. So um, they did so well with food in their first brick and mortar location. They opened up a second location and this one, they doubled down on the food, right? Now I have here, for those of you in Radioland, you cannot enjoy this. I have here some photos of food that I'm going to show to Liz Ooh, and get see. her reactions. Oh, wow. Yeah, th this is all looking very nice. It's plated. There's granola with a bunch of what looks like very healthy. I think I'm seeing chia and like some slivered almonds and some desiccated coconut. Uh, yeah. Let's see. What's that first one? Oh, yeah. Like a little fried egg and potato situation. Sure. I feel like this is way more elevated than you would normally expect from a coffee shop. This also takes a level of kitchen staff that is not small. This is a serious True. effort. I know from my own work, having a full menu at my cafe, that cooking is a full separate business, basically. Like you really have to yeah. staff for it. You cannot just have somebody on bar run to the back and make this food. This is a restaurant. For Matt, food was a really important part of his business. And uh, it was dramatically improving his business model. So that's, hmm. that's what we've done. And, and as a result of really pushing forward with food, you know, it brings our check averages up big time. So 70% of our sales right now are food and 30% is coffee currently. So it's, you know, obviously more than tripled our sales as a result of, of adding um, a lot of intentionality to the, the full service side of the restaurant. Wow. 70% is killer. 
That's a lot. 70% is killer. So if everything is perfect at this point in time, like the bluebird of happiness is perched upon his shoulder. He wanders through his various brick and mortar locations, watching them rake in piles of cash. So to be clear, he's making all these piles of cash by moving completely outside of the standard coffee shop business model. That's right, Liz. Although I want to say here that a lot of cafes try to save their business by expanding into food. And it's the last thing they do before they go bankrupt because food is an incredibly challenging business to be in, right? Restaurants are notoriously prone to failure. The reason that it works out for Matt is because of the way that Matt does this. It's because of his leadership style, culture that he fosters, and it's because of a very specific strategy he has around embracing the pivot. But let's go back. Bluebird of happiness, you remember? Yeah. And then the Iron Curtain of COVID. Sure. So did you lose all your catering revenue? I assume you lost all your catering revenue. Yeah, it was all gone. Yeah, and then yeah. It, we got it back a little bit, and then it went away again during our our second shutdown. It was a it was quite the roller coaster. Oh, so they were doing catering too. They were doing offsite oh, yeah. cooking contracts. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. My God. They had catering. They had retail locations, right? And then all that just evaporates. Yeah. I mean, what then, right? You know, like they diversified in a way that was sustainable and worked for them, but then it didn't. Until it didn't. So they deployed what sort of became the classic COVID playbook here, right? They stopped the opening of a second cafe. Yeah. They lied off a ton of their staff, mm. right? Which uh, many people did. It's important to understand. You have Many to. people did that as a compassionate measure. Yeah. Because they wanted people to be first in line for unemployment. Yeah, of which course. Which turned out to be actually the right thing to do if you're going to let somebody go. It's still hard. It is. It is. So, you know, the bluebird of happiness has been scared away by the jet black ravens of despair right? Except that's not really how Matthew rolls. He's a serial tinkerer. He's a serial innovator, right? As an example of that, listen to how he he managed the food side before COVID. Hmm. We try new things over and over and over again. I mean, we, we, we probably launched like six different restaurants. If we're, if we're honest, we pivoted and pivoted and pivoted new menus over and over again. And then we kept the ones that stuck. Hmm. There's sort of like a mental flexibility there that I think does help businesses weather challenges and meet the need. Totally. There's a magic word he says there, which is pivot. Yeah. And so the sort of the linchpin to this entire narrative is understanding that Matthew is in an eternal search for his next pivot. It's very cosmic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Let's listen to how he deploys that mentality at this time. And it was during that regrouping time that I realized that people are still buying coffee at grocery stores. And, uh, you know, they weren't coming into our stores as they were closed. So we went all, all hands on deck with trying to push forward with wholesale coffee. And it was something that, you know, we had thought maybe would potentially happen down the road. But we're finding out that, it, you know, it's, that COVID created or forced us into a new revenue stream. And it's continuing after all the restrictions are lifting here. So it, it ended up in some ways it was a, a blessing in disguise for us long term. A blessing in disguise. That's a powerful phrase. Right. Like yeah, it, right. It, it didn't right. it wasn't even just a life raft. It sounds like it it actually opened up some opportunities that maybe they weren't totally paying attention to. And they did something which was really awesome. They managed to get their roasted coffee into a local Myers grocery store. Wow. That's a big deal. That's a huge chain in the Midwest. And they went from 12 bags on the shelf to 200 bags at a neighboring superstore. Right. Oh my God. Right. <laughs> and so. <laughs> I mean, that's great in any economy. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> like, that's right. I mean, he really took the sort of like every time God closes a door, he opens a window mentality here. 
He put, and then he did the pivot thing. He identified what was working and then he resourced around that, right? Hmm. And it was working so well, he actually had to start hiring. Interesting. Yeah. I want to hear more about that. Here's the guy he hired. I'm Sean Hamilton. I'm uh, the director of coffee sales. I got brought on not too long ago when Mudpenny started to make a leap into wholesale. And they're seeing significant growth in wholesale too. Hmm. Um, I got brought on in March of 21. And since then, um, we've gone about one new client a week. I want to say that's about the average. That is a breakneck pace for wholesale growth. It is. It is. It's what I would refer to as like destructive growth sometimes. You know, <laughs> yeah. It'll tax your staff. It'll bend your business models to grow that quickly. But of course, this is Matthew's deal, right? I mean, this isn't a typical story of any coffee company getting into wholesale, even in the best of times. Like, what's the secret? How'd they manage to not only get these big accounts, but like keep growing and growing? You know, his business is built to adapt uh, to a degree that is much greater than most coffee businesses. Standard business models in cafe do not have this degree of innovation built in. Hmm. That allows him to sort of learn to do new things really quickly. It's part of his DNA, right? And so I gleaned a couple of things from Matthew about how he manages to do that. And the first thing is you create a culture where your employees are valued so they can take risks, they can share their ideas, and so that you're not the only one who's generating innovation for your business. Like the uh, Facebook adage, move fast and break things. Yeah, I like move fast and build things. And so we, I just let employees come up with ideas, then we use them and they'll find for themselves if there's either we found a treasure there that we didn't know we had and something takes off and then they'll do the next you know, launch of something new. And if it doesn't, then it's a good learning opportunity. You know, an example of a staff member who really feels empowered is in fact, Sean as director of coffee. Hmm. As one of those, I think leadership people, it definitely feels that he has this open culture to even be comfortable to bring up ideas. Because a lot of, I've been working management for long enough to know when and where I can assert an idea. And here, that's one thing that brought me is that culture of creativity, approachability. So what are some examples of employees being empowered to come up with innovative ideas that either worked or didn't work? So one example of that, uh, that he told me about that I thought was really interesting was he walked into his cafe one day and he found that his chef was of their own volition and on their own initiative, I think without even telling him in advance, going through every item on the menu and costing out like, what are the ingredients cost for this item, right? Because they wanted to understand what the drivers of profitability were for the food program. They felt ownership of it and they wanted to improve it, right? Matthew said that that led to higher margins for the business. I honestly, in my experience, never found the time as a business owner who was doing 25 things at once, you know, it can be hard to sit down at the end of a really long day and say like, okay, how much should I pay for carrots that go into this one salad? So Matthew has a second pillar to this sort of eternal pivot strategy, right? And that's that he thinks laterally. He's always looking for what new business opportunities he can create within his current space, with the current facilities and staff that he has, so that he can explore things. And as an example, right now, uh, he's getting into the baking business. Wow. We brought on a pastry chef at one of our locations that's now providing pastries for both locations with the goal that we will then have a bakery on its own someday. And so we're always trying to 
for every channel, run it as if it's its own business, but using all the existing pieces that we already have, our brand recognition, the employees that are already trained in, and using them to kind of cross-utilize. It takes the initial investment of opening, and if I was to open a brand new bakery right now, it's going to take you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars instead of just hiring on somebody that we can really pour into and specialize in, get our, our name, you know, become known for that, and then expand out. So Matthew's point is, if you were to start a bakery today, cold, it would take hundreds of thousands of dollars in new investment in building the premises, staffing the location, getting your stuff together. But recognizing that he already has a kitchen space, one, he already has brand recognition, two, the bakery becomes a no-brainer with those components. It's another channel that costs relatively little for him to create, even though if he started from scratch, that wouldn't be the case. Yeah, he has this like really masterful way of funding his pivots. He told me that when he opens up a new channel, it has to start making money kind of on day one. He won't accept otherwise, right? He like sort of scales the new channels in a way where they're always profit positive for him or almost always profit positive for him. And that gives him the sort of the safety and the ability to be really daring yeah, and to add new stuff and to, and to build them over time instead of needing them to be perfect on day one. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting to me also is that he really understands how to leverage the power of his own brand to resonate with his customers. Like, yes. he already has a business that sells products and he has already primed his customers to want those products from him as sort of a generator of, you know, what's good. And so I wish that more business owners would feel more empowered about using their own brand that way. You know, we hear from people all the time that they're afraid that if they don't use a well-established brand outside of their own that customers won't care enough about their private brand. And we find that really the opposite is true. Totally. You know, people want what's local. They come to your shop because they think you're cool and they want to know like what niche product you're pouring your energy into. They want to discover those things about you. Absolutely. He's focusing on Mudpenny building their own brand. So I guess the question that I have is, what is the brand that Mudpenny is cultivating? Right. So the brand that he wants to have, the brand that he, that he gets to own is based on quality. Hmm. He's always looking to do more, not looking to rationalize and do less. He's always looking to delight, right? He has this great anecdote from the hotel world. I heard a, uh, it was actually a, a talk one time from the guy that ran the Ritz-Carlton. And he said, everybody else was out there just making their shampoo smaller and we made ours bigger. And it was uh, this mindset that if you show customers the value that they actually have, they're gonna come back for more and you're gonna create a name for yourself. So yeah, you know, he builds a brand around generosity, around things that the customers are truly enjoying here. Maybe not just a cup of coffee or a high quality cup of coffee, but his brand is quality in the way that Steve's brand is perhaps uh, enlightened escapism. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I truly yeah. do. <laughs> Both of them are looking to do things that delight their customers. And, and they're doing them in smart ways. They're finding ways to save by breaking free of old ways of thinking about developing their businesses. Hmm, interesting. A cafe isn't just a purely a place that serves coffee. It's not just a, like a caffeine dealer. A cafe can be the anchor for a brand that has much more meaning for people. So if we look back again, so what is the recipe for success we're sort of divining here? First thing is, when you're opening new channels, try and make money from day one by using existing resources to explore. Number two, 
He has a culture of employee empowerment. They sort of own the business. They feel free to take risks and to invest their time in, in improving the business. Third, always produce a high quality product. And fourth, I would say is, I think one other important thing that Steve and Matthew have in common is that they do have the ability to recognize something that they don't want to do, right? Something that they don't want to have in their business plan. And for Matthew, that was e-commerce. He doesn't really believe that his business is going to be the strongest e-commerce player. It's very competitive out there right now to sell bags of coffee through the internet. And for Steve, he always knew that he didn't want to have a giant roastery somewhere, which is kind of the conventional model, right? Yeah. He wanted to bring intelligent automation and the consistency that can bring, right? Right into the cafe and roast in the cafe. Yeah, it's interesting that by getting clear on what you don't want to do, it can make what you do want to do a little more obvious. And Liz, you know, I think the thing that I pull away from this is that you do have to be pragmatic. You, you do have to be mindful of financial realities. But I don't know, I feel like you don't have to follow the dogma. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that what they're pointing out is that you have permission not to follow the model and that it can work out for you. So where does this leave Doug? We haven't uh, returned to his plight in a while. <laughs> so let me remind you of, of the kind of pickle that Doug found himself in. So first, Everything was going great. They opened up three cafes and a kiosk. And then everything starts to fall apart with COVID. He's closing retail unit after retail unit after retail unit. He survived temporarily, stripped everything back to the one cafe, but he's in a dilemma. What else can he offer that isn't a retail coffee experience? He can't do e-commerce because... Inherently, we want to be able to provide jobs for people that are forward-facing. So I think it is striking that right balance between, okay, you know, the e-commerce is, is a way for us to be able to raise money, for us to be able to make funds. But we've got to really make sure that that doesn't overtake also this need to empower people. Yeah, it's true. I mean, sometimes, right, you do have to make decisions that aren't the most profitable if they don't align with your mission. Because otherwise, why are you in business? Right. I agree, Liz. I mean, you know, I sit on the board of 1951 and I have for a long time. And Doug and I talked a lot about how he was going to be able to execute a pivot here um, so that he could fulfill both his missions and be financially successful. And I'm proud to say that Doug really did that. Hmm. He focused all of his energies on managing the one cafe. And I'm happy to say that that cafe is now experiencing revenues that are 10% higher than they have ever experienced in their past. And at the same time, their costs are lower because he's rationalized the open hours to better fit his market there, which is mostly college students from UC Berkeley. At the same time, that's allowed him to have resources and a bit of time to focus on the training program. And so the training program is now going gangbusters, and that at a time when this sort of late COVID economy of 2021 um, has spawned a huge labor deficit. So he's training baristas at the exact time that the world needs baristas, right? He's really pivoted to be in tune with the world here. And it's turned out that he's able to both fulfill his mission and operate from a place of financial strength. So I think that the big takeaway here is that if you're opening a cafe today, you can go online right now and you can find somebody who will give you a cookie cutter business model for opening your cafe. But that model was not resilient against COVID. Hmm. What was resilient against COVID was a mentality 
of innovation, of openness, and of prudent use of resources. It was actually more foundational stuff that carried people through and allowed them to thrive in COVID. Well, and interestingly, one of the through lines I've heard is sort of a an openness to fail, a willingness to discover what wasn't working as much as what was working. And that can feel really scary. It is really scary. I mean, your margins are thin on coffee businesses. Nobody has a ton of cash to burn. Um, but the rewards obviously are worth it if you can innovate smartly and decide quickly what's working and then pour all your resources into those avenues. This podcast was produced by James Harper of Filter Productions with music by Eli Nelson. And just in case you don't know, Bellwether makes the world's first zero emissions commercial coffee roaster that lets cafes roast for themselves. We've put links to all the interviewee social media in the show notes and links to articles we've written at Bellwether if you want to go deeper on anything we talked about. And wherever you are in the industry, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, our email address is connect at bellwethercoffee.com and we're online at bellwethercoffee.com. If you like the show, share it with your friends and drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. In our next episode, we'll be pulling apart the thorny topic of price. We're going to untangle the complicated history of coffee pricing, how we got here, what's the cost of doing nothing, and what it looks like to remake the global coffee pricing model from the ground up. Millions of coffee farmers and their communities depend on us getting this right, so we're going to explore how. Because I think that the industry could have continued to pat themselves on the back to say like, yeah, we still feel really good about the way that we're purchasing coffee. And instead, when you have the data to back up that like what you're doing is not enough, it really puts this pressure behind you to say like, we really need to be doing more data-driven decisions when it comes to procuring coffee. But until then, take care and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.